So it's good to be here with all of you. I was just told that Pastor Rich out in California uh, may be watching right now at, uh, what is it, 7.30 AM or, or 8 now, 8 o'clock out there. So uh, why don't we all turn around to the camera and say hi to Pastor Rich and, and Nicola if she's watching too. Praying for you guys. So I wasn't expecting to be up here again so soon, but uh, Pastor Rich needed someone to fill in while he's in California this weekend, so here I am. So I wrote most of these notes down while I was camping out in line in the Walmart parking lot on Thanksgiving on Black Friday. So my slides there. There we go. <laughs> I hope it all makes sense. It's kind of a blur. That's my, the, my tent's the first one on the left there, you know. I brought a clipboard and a little, little hand warmer to keep the ink in my pen from freezing, you know. And I just went at it. I like the caption on this picture from the news station. Some shoppers don't think camping out worth it. <laughs> okay, I wasn't really there camping out. I, I'm one of those shoppers. I don't, I don't think it's worth it. I, I don't. I, you know, Chris already talked about Black Friday and that... Uh, when we did that song enough, but I, I was out there, I have to admit, I was out there at 6.30, not, not like in the middle of the night, not camping out, not freezing, no, just 6.30, I get up pretty early anyway, so I was there at 6.30, um, things weren't too crazy at that point, you know, it had been, Walmart had been open for like five and a half hours already at that point at 6.30 in the morning, so it was more relaxed, I think, and, uh, you know, how many of you like Black Friday shopping, by the way? I got one, I got two. Wow, that's not too many. I guess I'm in the minority here. <laughs> Just to be clear, I've never trampled anyone. And I've never been trampled. I'm neither a trampler nor a tramplee. So, and I've never actually seen that kind of stuff going on. You know, there's a lot of carts, people bump into each other, whatever. But it's not that bad. I know those things happen, and it's terrible that they do in some places, but I've never seen any of that. Um, you always hear about the bad stuff that happens, but you, you never hear about the guy who got half his Christmas shopping done in one day at a reasonable price. That doesn't make the news, you know? So that's just not as interesting. Now, uh, I was kidding about writing my notes in the parking lot, but after Pastor Rich taught last weekend and gave a few choice Charles Spurgeon quotes, he, uh, he and I joked that sometimes I, I just feel like I should print out one of his sermons and stand up here in front of you all and read what Charles Spurgeon had to say about a passage. Um, he's full of a lot of great stuff. And it, when he asked me to teach on Tuesday night for this week, he said that since it was short notice, I could just take a Charles Spurgeon sermon <laughs> and uh, use one of his. I just needed to take out the these, thous, and draughts from all the old English. It was very tempting. That's a lot of editing, though. So I decided to do my own message instead. Has anyone ever seen this acronym? I'm guessing that some of you have, right? Paula has. She's raising her hand. What does it stand for? Fully rely on God. Fully rely on God, right. Maybe you might have seen it printed on a bracelet or a T-shirt or a pin, even. Um, this picture I found from a Google image search was like one of hundreds of fully rely on God frog images. It's easy to remember, frog. 
And so that's what I want to talk about today, about fully relying on God. And I think I decided to speak about this because, to be perfectly honest with you, I normally have a little more time to get a message together than finding out on Tuesday that I'm teaching on Sunday and having Thanksgiving in the middle of it and all the houses we have to go to and all of that stuff. Um, So I knew that if I was going to do this, then I would really need to fully rely on God. And that's not to say that I fully rely on myself when I normally do a message in here, but... Sometimes, you know, you just get a greater sense of just how much you need God's help to get something done, right? So praise God, he gave me the time I needed. I got Friday off from work, which I didn't have beforehand. And so last minute, I was able to get Friday off from work so I could work on this. And he gave me a message to to bring, too. So I picked out a few examples from the Bible that we can look at about how we need to fully rely on God and how much we need his help. Um, Relying on God is really a much better option than fully relying on myself. That's Fromm's. That's that's the acronym for for fully relying on myself, Fromm's. And it's a cat food. I didn't know that. Okay. (laughs) That's about how much it's worth. (laughs) Less than cat food. Um, in fact, Fromm's is a SWAMU. SWAMU stands for a surefire way of messing everything up. <laughs> I don't think that one's going to end up on a t-shirt or a bracelet. It's no RC Gep or 512-5512, some of Pastor Rich's favorites, right? So why don't we turn to Judges chapter 7. And we can see what God's word has to say about relying on him. Judges chapter 7 is the second chapter covering what will be a familiar account to some of you of the life of Gideon. And in the life of Gideon, I think that God really teaches us a lot about relying on him. Now Gideon, as a Sunday school teacher, I've got to say, is a dynamite lesson. If If you get on the schedule for Gideon on your turn to teach... That's like awesome. You, you, the kids are really into Gideon. You know, there's a lot of unique things and interesting things going on. There's a lot of action in Gideon. And I can think of a couple different crafts just off the top of my head with fleeces and uh, torches and jars. And I don't even really normally make crafts. That's not really my thing. You know, like, but uh, they, they kind of make themselves when it's a lesson like Gideon. So Gideon's like a slam dunk of a lesson to get, you know, when you see your your name next to Gideon on the Sunday school schedule, you're like, yes. But I think Gideon has even more to teach us grown-ups than it does to to teach the kids. Um, The little background information from chapter 6, where we first see Gideon, the Israelites had been under oppressive control of the Midianites for seven years as a result of their own sin, specifically the sin of worshiping false gods and idols. The Midianites took all of their crops, they took all of their livestock, and there were more Midianites camped in Israel than could be counted. As a result of this, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And this is a pattern that we see again and again in the book of Judges, where Israel sinned, God punished them, and they were taken over by another country or uh, oppressed in some way. Then they cried out to God for help, and God raised up a judge to save them and to free them from that oppression. So in this case, Gideon is our latest judge. 
in uh, chapters 6 and 7 here. He's the one that God will use this time to free his people because they've cried out to him in repentance. But Gideon himself wondered how this could be possible when God called him. Back in chapter 6, verse 15, he asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites together. Still unsure, Gideon asked God for a sign three separate times. A sign that God really would save Israel using Gideon like he said he would. Rather than tell Gideon that being visited by the angel of the Lord to give you this mission in the first place was all the sign he needed, God graciously provided the signs that Gideon asked for. First, he burned up Gideon's sacrifice with fire from heaven. Then later on in chapter 6, there are the two tests of the fleece. First, Gideon put a fleece out on the ground one night, and the fleece was wet, but the ground was dry. And the next night, he put a fleece out, and the ground was wet, but the fleece was dry. And these were the tests that he gave God to prove that God really was going to do what he said he would. Something I wouldn't want to try, testing God in that way. He needed a lot of reassurance, though, that God was really with him. I don't think we're really that much different. We might not be laying fleeces out on the ground and saying to God what he should do to show us what he's really going to do. But we're not much different. We need reassurance. We have fears and we have uh, doubts as well. And it takes time and experience in our walks with the Lord to have uh, our faith and trust in him built up, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So Gideon, though he was delayed slightly by all the signs he asked for, did obey the Lord and go where he was sent. And all of this brings us up to chapter 7, where we find Gideon and about 32,000 fighting men of Israel preparing to take on a superior force, a far superior force of 135,000 Midianites. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, another name he had, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel might not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, but 10,000 remained. We see here that clearly God does not want us to trust in our own strength. We become prideful and believe that we've delivered ourselves from our enemies. Gideon likely thought that 135,000 to 32,000 was enough of an underdog matchup already. That he would already need God's divine intervention to win this battle. But God knew that Slightly worse than four to one odds was not bad enough of a situation to make it clear that they needed God's help. After losing two-thirds of his men, Gideon certainly would have thought 13 to one odds he now had were daunting enough, right? But God wasn't done. Continuing in verse 4, But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. 
So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. 300 men left now out of 32,000. How do you think those 300 guys felt about their decision to drink from their hands? We're, what? We what? We're staying? The Life Application Study Bible has this to say about this section. Self-sufficiency is a handicap which causes us to believe we can do what needs to be done in our own strength. To prevent this attitude among Gideon's soldiers, God reduced the number from 32,000 to 300. With an army this vastly outnumbered, there could be no doubt that victory was from God. Like Gideon, we must recognize the danger of fighting in our own strength. Well said. So with the odds now stacked up to 450 to 1, victory for the Israelites could not be credited to anyone but God. And the 300 men who remained would need to fully rely on God and trust in Him to stand against the enemy. It would not matter how skilled of a soldier you were, and many of these men were likely shepherds or farmers of some sort. One man claiming to defeat 450 men by himself would, would not be likely, would not be possible. Something supernatural would need to happen for these men to win the victory. Now, if I'm watching a sporting event, how many of you do this? If I'm watching a sporting event and I don't have a rooting interest in either side, like all three of the Thanksgiving Day football games, I could, couldn't care at all about who won those games. But they were on the TV at my parents' house, so I'll root for the underdog. I'll root for the team that seems less likely to win. Or if I turn it on halfway through the game, I'll root for the team that's losing already. You know, not, I mean, I'm not going crazy and jumping out of my chair or anything, but, you know, just to see what happens. I'll, I'll say, oh, I'd like them to come back and win this game here. You know, it's, it's more interesting that way. It's fun to see something unexpected happen. If the underdogs win, the players will be credited afterwards with really going all out, sticking to it, giving it everything they had, rising to the occasion, and so on and so forth. But this battle here was not just a regular underdog story. It was the equivalent of turning on a game between the New England Patriots and a peewee football team <laughs> with less than two minutes to play and the score at 117 to nothing. And that's because the Patriots were taking it easy on them because they're kids. <laughs> what I'm saying here is there would be no normal, imaginable way for that peewee team to pull off the victory, just as there is no way that the Israelites could now defeat the Midianites with 300 men unless God did something miraculous. After this battle was over, if they won, no one could say it was the grit, determination, craftiness, or skill of Gideon and his men that secured the victory. The odds were just too greatly stacked against them. Gideon had obeyed God and sent the men away and shown great faith in doing so. God knew, though, that he needed encouragement. It's a scary situation to face an army down with that so few men. And so we see, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. At first, this visit does not seem to be one of encouragement, right? 
Gideon goes down there and he sees for himself just how many men they have and how many camels they have for that matter. But God didn't send him there, send him there to be scared by how many camels they had. God had a reason for sending him there, and we see the reason in verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. This is an enemy soldier, mind you. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. God had promised that Gideon would be encouraged by this visit to the enemy camp. And he did not fail to deliver on that promise. A loaf of barley bread, just in case you're wondering, was food eaten only by the poorest of people or by animals. It was not high-quality bread. One commentator said about this, a loaf of barley bread might be a worthless thing, but if God were behind it, it could upset a tent. That a loaf of barley bread would immediately make the enemy soldiers think of Gideon and his men shows you how low their opinion of him was before this. But now, because of this dream, they're afraid of him. And by having Gideon go into the camp at precisely the right moment to overhear this conversation, God greatly encouraged the man he planned to use to lead the charge into battle. Clearly, Gideon was afraid before this, because God said, If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah. If Gideon had not have been afraid, he would not have needed the encouragement. But God knew what he needed, and he provided it. Likewise, when God sends us out to do his work, he provides the encouragement we need to keep doing it. Sometimes he encourages us through circumstances, sometimes through his word, sometimes by the Holy Spirit giving us an extra sense of peace in difficult circumstances. Sometimes he uses us to encourage each other. Isn't it amazing when we find out that something we said to someone that we thought was of little importance had greatly encouraged them because it was God who sent us to tell them that thing? The thing that we didn't even know was so important to them to hear at just the right time? Then we get encouraged because we were used by God to encourage someone else. What a blessing that is. I don't think that the Midianite soldiers were looking to encourage Gideon, but God used them to do so anyway. So Gideon was fired up now. He went back to his camp ready to roll. After the first three signs he received, not to mention God speaking directly to him throughout this time, and this latest sign with the enemy soldier's dream, I should certainly hope he was ready to go. He had been reassured multiple times by God that he was with him and that he would give him victory. So in verse 16, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now this is an interesting strategy, probably not the usual attack plan. We don't have any explanation of the source for Gideon's plan, but God may have inspired it in Gideon, as chapter 6 did state that the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. And adding and for Gideon to the battle cry might seem arrogant at first. I had kind of always thought so. But remember that Gideon now knew that the men of Midian were fearful of him. They used his name when they spoke about the dream. They had little fear of the Lord of Israel, Otherwise, they wouldn't have attacked his people in the first place. But they were afraid of Gideon. 
So adding his name to the battle cry would add to the fear and confusion that would follow. In verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. They, the three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all of the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn to each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. God had given Gideon and his 300 men victory over the Midianites, and all who heard about this battle would know that it was the Lord who had won it for them. For an army that size to all turn with their swords against each other because 300 men blew trumpets and showed their torches... That could be nothing short of supernatural. God could have wiped the Midianites out with an army of angels. He could have sent them through the camp to destroy them. But he chose to use Gideon and the 300 men to do their small part here in faith, just as he chooses to use us. Gideon called out the other people of Israel, not because God needed reinforcements, but because he likely wanted the whole country to take part in the victory and be united together by this effort. In the next chapter, the men of Ephraim even complained that they were not invited to the battle sooner. But he managed to smooth that over by complimenting them. <laughs> After Israel had been beaten down and oppressed by the Midianites for seven years, he wanted everyone to have a chance to take part in the victory that God had given them over their enemies. Just like Gideon, God will put us into situations in our lives where we are more aware than usual of our helplessness. We're always that way, really. We just kid ourselves sometimes by believing that we've got anything under control, that we can handle anything on our own. <coughs> But the Lord will remind us at times just how much we need Him, how much we need to fully rely on God. And I said I wasn't going to read a Spurgeon sermon, but here's a Spurgeon quote. We can do nothing of ourselves, but we can do everything by the help of our God. Let us therefore in His name determine to go out personally and serve with our flaming torch of holy example and with our trumpet tones of earnest declaration and testimony. And God shall be with us. And Midian shall be put to confusion, and the Lord of hosts shall reign forever and ever. I, I knew I should have just read a Spurgeon sermon. That's, <laughs> it's better than anything I've got. But <laughs> Gideon is just one example of God showing us that he wants us to rely on him. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, among commandments God gave for the future kings of Israel who would not come until hundreds of years later, God, we find God saying, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. While Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. In Psalm 33.17, likewise, says, a horse is vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. All of this, these three verses and more, is of course because God hates horses. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> 
No need for all you equestrian lovers to throw your riding crops and boots at me. God doesn't hate horses. <laughs> it's quite interesting when you do a word search for horses in the Bible, though, how many verses like this come up. And I have to apologize for the few of you here who come to Wednesday night studies that I recycled that joke and used it twice. You had to hear it twice now, so I'm sorry about that. We were looking at that verse when we were looking at the life of King Solomon because King Solomon, who we've been studying in 1 Kings, threw that commandment out the window and acquired 12,000 horses. It was not just the fact that Egypt seemed to be the premier place to go to get horses at the time. It was also that amassing horses was a way for the king and a nation to trust their own military strength rather than trust in the Lord. Solomon subsequently stopped relying on God and turned to the false gods of his many wives as he grew older. At the beginning of his reign, when God had asked him to name anything that he wanted, and God would give it to him, he recognized his own inability to rule, saying to God in 1 Kings 3, 7-9, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon recognized that he needed God's help to govern the people of Israel early on in his reign. He called himself a little child, though he was a full-grown man and had been for some time. The word translated here as a discerning heart or elsewhere as an understanding heart in other translations is literally closer in the original Hebrew to a hearing heart, a heart that hears what God says. Solomon asked for a hearing heart when God asked, said, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. A heart that could hear God's voice leading him. For many years, Solomon used this hearing heart that God gave him to govern wisely, including the construction of the temple. And his prayer of dedication for the temple when it was completed was beautiful and recognized again and again that God's people would need to cry out to him for help in the future. But as Solomon enjoyed such success and wealth, he turned away from his full reliance on God, the one true God, towards the end of his life. And as a result, the kingdom was divided after his death and was never the same again. He stopped using the hearing heart that God had given him. Now, most of us do not have horses. And even if there are some horse owners here today, I don't think any of you have put undue trust in your horse. I could be wrong. But the horse is just a symbol of relying on our own strength and earthly possessions to help us. Horses were certainly not Solomon's only problem. Don't get me started on his thousand wives and concubines. We are called by God to put our trust in him, to have hearing hearts that follow where he leads and depend on him to guide us, to protect us, to provide for us, and help us every day. Then we can say, like David did in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Now, the next thing I want to look at is Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet is one of my favorite people in the Bible. He was at times so bold and so courageous. He spoke against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and the idol worship that they had led Israel into. He confronted the prophets of Baal. There were... were, I believe 450 of them and just one of him. But at other times, 
he grew so discouraged and fearful that he even cried out to God and asked him to end his life because he didn't want to go on any further. He was very much human is what I'm saying, like you and me, despite the great victories that God gave him. The first thing we see God teaching Elijah is to rely completely upon him. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. Just a little bit ahead of Judges. Elijah, this is the, the, when we first see him really. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. From what we see here, and knowing that Elijah was a prophet, we would logically conclude that he was delivering a message from the Lord to the wicked king Ahab, correct? Who had at this point basically made uh, Baal worship the official religion of the northern kingdom of Israel. We get further insight on this from James, who wrote in his letter much later, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So not only did Elijah deliver the message that it wasn't going to rain, but he prayed for it. He saw the king and the people turning away from the Lord to a God who was supposed to be God of the sky. And he prayed for God to demonstrate that Baal could do nothing to provide rain. This showed great trust in the Lord to take care of him during this time, as a drought of this magnitude would affect everyone, including Elijah. God would show Elijah in this time that he could indeed fully rely on him for all of his needs. In verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. By sending Elijah to this solitary place, God would teach him to truly depend on him for his daily provisions. It would also give him valuable time spent alone with God as he waited for his next food delivery. David Guzik said this about this this section, In a season of drought, he had to trust that God would keep this brook flowing. He also had to accept food from the ravens, which were unclean animals. The name Cherith comes from the ancient root meaning to cut away, to cut up or off. This shows that God had some cutting to do in the life of Elijah during this period. One thing that would certainly be cut out in the time like this would be any self-reliance that Elijah had, right? There are times in our lives when God uses our circumstances to do this cutting work in us. It's not often comfortable, is it? But in the end, it teaches us to depend more on the Lord and we come out stronger in our relationship with Him, trusting Him more than we did before. Why? Because he proves himself to us in those situations that he is ever faithful and will never forsake us. The times in my life that I have cried out to him most fervently were when I have had nothing left that I could try to do for myself. Which was, of course, foolish to try in the first place. Why not just cut to the chase and ask God for help? Why did the brook dry up before the rains came? Commentator F.B. Meyer, who lived in the 1800s and early 1900s, had this to say. 
Why does God let them dry? He wants to teach us not to trust in his gifts, but in himself. He wants to drain us of self, as he drained the apostles by ten days of waiting before Pentecost. He wants to loosen our roots ere he removes us to some other sphere of service and education. He wants to put in stronger contrast the river of throne water that never dries. Could have grabbed one of his sermons, too. (laughs) In Elijah's case, God would use this both to further teach him and to teach someone else to rely on him as well. Picking it up in verse 7. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Now, if Elijah took an earthly view of this situation, it would seem that he had asked the wrong person for food. This one had next to none, only enough for one last meal and no hope of getting any more. It would be the equivalent of pulling into the Chick-fil-A drive-thru on a Sunday and then finding a sign that said that not only are they closed because it's Sunday, but they're out of business too. So you're not going to find any food there. Zarephath in Sidon was a Gentile city. It took faith to even go there, expecting to be fed as an Israelite man. Now the widow he was led to was not just poor, but so greatly impoverished that she and her son expected to starve very soon. She used the phrase, as surely as the Lord your God lives, which would indicate that the Lord was Elijah's God, but not hers. She had no hope of deliverance from her poverty and from her her impending starvation. She lived in Sidon, where people generally worshipped Baal, who the Israelites had fallen into worshipping. This was where the wicked queen Jezebel was from. And so her only place to turn to for help, as someone who did not know the true God, was a worthless idol. So she had lost all hope. But then Elijah arrived, sent there by God. He didn't arrive offering food, though. He arrived asking for it. She had nothing to give him and told him so. But Elijah would not be turned away to find some other person to get his food from. In verse 13, it says, Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. God had chosen this woman to provide for Elijah and in doing so had chosen to save her as well. But in order to be saved, she needed to take a step of faith and use some of what little she had to feed Elijah. She needed to rely not on Baal or herself or the truth of her situation, but to trust in the Lord, a Lord she didn't know. It was only by taking that step that she would be blessed. And she did. It says, so she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. 
God showed the widow that he could be counted on, trusted, relied upon. There's no mention of it here, but what God do you think that woman would worship going forward? What God would she cry out to for help when she needed it later? Baal, the statue who could do nothing for her? Or the living God, the true God, Yahweh, who had provided for her all of her needs, who had sent Elijah to her? There can be little doubt that in the time that Elijah was there in her house, that he had spent that time teaching her and her son all about the Lord and teaching them how they could rely on his God and he could be their God too. God uses difficult times in our lives to show us the same, that he can be relied on, that we should put our trust in him. So we've read about battles and horses. We've read about raven food delivery and automatically refilling flower jars. We've read about Gideon, Solomon, and Elijah. And we've seen how God wants us to rely on him and not ourselves or any other source of help, but to rely on him for all of our needs. There are more examples in the Bible than I have time to talk about this morning of how God provides for us and takes care of us and how we can rely on him. But what about our spiritual needs? How do we rely on Him for those? Well, we can just look to Jesus as our example, of course. Though fully God Himself, when Jesus was here walking the earth, He relied completely on the Father. And in doing so, gave us the great example, greatest example we could ever have on how to do so. Where we struggle and fall into self-reliance at times and need to repent of it, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life and spent it relying on God the Father. Though if anyone could ever have claimed to be able to rely on himself, it was Jesus. Yet time and again in the four Gospels, Jesus prayed to the Father and made it a point to go off by himself to pray in a quiet place and to be alone with the Father. Just in coming here to earth as a human baby, Jesus needed to rely on the Father to take care of him in those years that he could not take care of himself as an infant and young boy. God provided a human family for him, but ultimately, Jesus was putting himself in the Father's hands when he did that. And then as he began his ministry, we see that everywhere he went, he was, he was praying and in commu constant communication with the Father. He certainly did not rely on earthly wealth or possessions, which he had none of, he who is one with the Father took more time to pray than I think any of us ever do, certainly. And we need it far more than Jesus did. Jesus knew the scriptures inside and out from memory, for they were his words. We need to spend time in our Bibles to get what we need from there, from him. And we need to spend time in prayer and time in fellowship as well so that we can remember to rely on God. And we'll see that he is faithful in every single area of our lives that we trust him with. The more we trust him, the more he will show himself faithful. Faithful to provide in ways beyond what we could even expect for all of our needs. I don't want to close today without speaking about the one thing that stands above all others that we need to rely on God for, and that's our salvation. There is no way for us to save ourselves. Like Justin was speaking about a couple of weeks ago, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
Everything we talked about today is part of our lives as followers of Jesus. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Him to be your Savior, you have no one you can rely on right now. Everyone that you could put your trust in will let you down eventually, especially yourself, for any of these things. Certainly can't rely on anyone else to save you from sin and death. There's only one person you can turn to for that. If that's you, I urge you to do as Gideon did, as Elijah did, as the widow did, and put aside your self-reliance and ask him for the salvation that all of us need. Left to ourselves, we have no hope at all. But when we rely on him, we gain a hope that we can be sure of. And we put our lives on a rock instead of sinking sand. A firm foundation. For those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus and received new life in him, the challenge is to rely on him more and more. Every day. To look around and see what he has done for us in both earthly blessings and spiritual ones and to grow in him so that we're people who are truly relying on him. That's what we need to do. So let's pray. Lord, we do just want to thank you and praise you for the ways that you provide for us and show us your great love and faithfulness. We want to give you all of the glory for what you've done in our lives. There's so much that you've done, but there's no other way but you that we could be saved. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all the times that you've shown yourself in our lives that, that we can count on you. We thank you for redeeming us, giving us new life, continuing to work in our hearts to make us more and more like you. Help us to be people who rely on you more and more each day for all of our many, many needs. We need you, Lord Jesus. Every hour we need you, every minute. Help us to draw closer to you in prayer, in your word, and in walking with you in this life until you bring us home to heaven to dwell with you forever. We just thank you, Jesus, for never, your never-ending faithfulness. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.